thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, lots of East Germans swarmed across the city. For some, their first act in the West was to gaze in wonder through the windows of the elegant shops on Kafustendam Avenue. The writer Alan Bennett quipped mordantly about the freedom to shop. Of course, there was much more at stake than that. We normally take freedom for granted, but not now during the COVID-19 pandemic. And freedom of movement is restricted even in democracies. And what about the freedom to change one's religion? Or is that apostasy and banned? I guess it depends where you live, not just what you believe. And is there free will? And if there is, what does it mean? Well, you've guessed it. The concept of freedom is our topic this week. It's a profound subject, but talk to a neuroscientist about it and it starts to sound very granular. Here's Gabriel Kreiman from Harvard Medical School speaking on The Naked Scientists. But what we're finding is that neurons in particular parts of the frontal lobe, more specifically an area called the supplementary motor area and the pre-supplementary motor area, get activated and are making those decisions for the subject way in advance, way before subjects become conscious of that decision. So several hundred milliseconds and in some cases even seconds before people know that they are going to execute that action. The neurons are firing like crazy saying, now we're going to be orchestrating this action. With me to discuss freedom, Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute. Miriam was brought up in East Germany before the wall came down, and she's a fellow at St. Edmunds College, Cambridge, an expert in Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations in pre-modern Egypt and Spain. And an old friend of Naked Reflections, Dr. Alexander Massman of the Faculty of Divinity here in Cambridge. 
Alexander is a theologian who I'm sure can help me understand whether I can believe in God and have free will. But before we discuss free will, Miriam, you grew up in a country without the freedoms we take for granted, or at least did before COVID-19. What was your day-to-day experience like? I think it's often quite difficult for people who grow up in different circumstances to imagine what life is like in a, in a socialist or in a communist state. Maybe there has been a bit of an introduction now through the COVID measures. There's a bit of more of an understanding that the state can just determine what you can and what you can't do. And if you if you look at freedom in, in, in the sort of broad sense of being able to follow one's desires, um, one desire that we couldn't follow was, of course, that while we had money, there was nothing to buy for it. So a lot of people earned a lot of money, but there was very little to spend it on because the shops just didn't have any goods you could buy. Um, but on the other hand, people had a lot of time. Um, when you work in professions that, again, the state tells you, Uh, to pursue. The state has a monopoly on giving out professions. The state regulates um, who gets to go and do A-levels, who gets to go and uh, uh, study, who uh, follows which profession. Once you have basically put up with the fact that you cannot determine which profession you will take uh, and you, you know, are happy with the fact that you can't buy much and you can't travel where you want to travel. You can travel within East Germany and certain East Bloc countries, but you can't travel uh, everywhere. But once you have basically put up with this, in the same way that we have put up with a lot of COVID restrictions, you actually have a lot of freedom because time gives you freedom. Uh, a lot of freedoms now are curtailed by lack of money. That was no lack of money because everyone had the same sort of money. Uh, there were no rich and poor because everyone basically had the same uh, amount of money uh, at their disposal. Um, so you basically have a different degree of personal freedom. You can, you know, on Friday, no one works on Friday. You can do on Friday what you want. You can meet with friends. Um, no one works after four o'clock. You can always, uh, you know, plan to go to the opera. You can go to the theater. There's a lot of money put into arts because it's one of the prestige uh, objects of, uh, of, of the East German state. So everyone, including working class cleaners, they can they can go to the opera because the money is fixed. You pay, I don't know, a, a, a mark or two marks, you know, equivalent of like 20, 30p to go to the opera. So while there are certain freedoms you cannot enjoy, on the other hand, socialists and communist states gave a lot of other personal freedoms to their citizens. And this is also what causes a lot of nostalgia now on part of elderly East Germans who who really do miss the good old times as they see it. Because if you were happy with all these restrictions put upon you, um, you know, you could have a very, very nice life. So would you say it was the same level of freedom and just a different type of freedom? Or did you discover greater freedom after the collapse of the Berlin Wall? Well, one of the most difficult things for me that came with the wall, the wall coming down was actually suddenly to have the ability to choose what profession to take. In East Germany, things were very, very limited for me. I would never have been able to do A-levels. I would have never been able to study simply because of the position of my parents. Then when the wall came down, suddenly being faced with this extreme freedom to choose what you want to do with your life, I, I thought it was absolutely overwhelming. I was basically um, knocked out for a few years. I, I just did not know what to do. And... Uh, Eventually, I found my path. But again, it was complete serendipity. It was something that sort of, I enrolled in one course, then I changed to another course. And I, it took me like three or four years to find what I actually wanted to do. 
Um, but a lot of people never quite found that, especially in my generation. They're really lost because they didn't learn to be free from an early age. And then once they were given freedom, it was very, very difficult for them. So, Alexander, Miriam's outlined her personal journey, if you like, of grappling with what freedom means and the challenge it brings. I mean, do you think freedom is core to what it is to be human or uh, is, is, it, um, yeah, is it part of the human condition or not? It is typically human to be free. So in the recent decades, we've learned tremendous amounts about animals, how they're able to think and also adjust their behavior in a flexible way. Um, now, it strikes me as curious, in a certain sense, humans are more free and also less free than those animals, perhaps. So um, one of my favorite authors, Franz de Waal, who always uh, writes about his observations of chimpanzees, recounts how at one point, two aspiring males assassinated the leading alpha and killed him. Um, and then the next day, there was a female chimp that saw that assassination and chased one of the perpetrators up the tree. So it almost seems like there's some moral reckoning to be had there, but it didn't last. And um, eventually the chimps just calmed down. And I find that really interesting. So for us, our human freedom means there must be a moral reckoning. It doesn't, of course, always happen, but it seems like we're the kind of creature that can't do long without it. Um, that is a hallmark of our freedom. And um, perhaps sometimes it's easier for chimpanzees not to go through all of those convulsions. <laughs> but as a theologian, you know, of course, that there are big, big questions about freedom, about what you call the reckoning, because so often there doesn't seem to be a reckoning, or if there is a reckoning, it seems a very unfair one. Doesn't that uh, change our understanding of what freedom is? Yeah, that's right. So there are different levels at which there are conflicts about freedom. Of course, the outcry of the oppressed, who, which often goes unheard. Um, and there, interestingly, I mean, it's certainly a very legitimate question for religious traditions. How are you taking that into account if you speak of a, a created order that allows for freedom and justice? And I think one of the important insights is that many religious traditions provide the avenues and the arenas in which those conflicts are articulated, even if they're not settled. And then, of course, there's the question, well, how does our freedom relate to, um, to that divine creator, for example? In our political conflicts, we've just talked about former East Germany, we're used to some agents gaining more power and others having less power in response. Um, and there's a temptation, of course, to think of that, to think in those terms about the relationship between humanity and, and God as well. Um, what a lot of religious traditions, including my own Christianity, has pointed out is that my own freedom doesn't take away from God's and God's doesn't take away from mine. So there uh, wouldn't be the reason to fear some... Uh, potentate in the sky. <laughs> Before we get into the sort of theological, philosophical understanding, um, I'd, I'd like to uh, ask Miriam to comment on how the concept of freedom might have changed, particularly in, 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 in this medieval period, um, when there was this uh, interaction, sometimes positive and, uh, and sometimes negative, uh, between Jews, Christians and Muslims. What did freedom mean, for example, in medieval Spain, Miriam? 
That's a very interesting question. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, again, in a way, the sort of the pre-modern societies had different levels of personal freedom. Again, you had freedom if you were a free person. There was an awful lot of slavery everywhere. A lot of people were in some sort of servitude to others. Uh, a lot of your personal freedom was very, very bound up with, with uh, you know, having the right, having having money to be able to be free. And very interestingly, these pre-modern pluralist states, they came up with concepts of how to deal with religious minorities. So they would basically give, they would bestow some amount of freedom on these citizens. So people were able, Jews and Christians, for example, in, in Muslim Egypt or in, in Muslim Spain, they were able to uh, pursue their religion. They were able to uh, meet in, in houses that were dedicated to worship, so in synagogues and churches. But, for example, you couldn't buy, you couldn't build any new churches or you couldn't build any new synagogues. So you had particular freedoms that were given in order to keep the peace in these communities and, and, and have these communities thrive in your state. But a lot of freedoms were taken away. At least according to the law, you couldn't uh, ride horses, you couldn't wear particular kinds of armor, uh, you were um, forbidden from doing all sorts of things, depending on the state. Sometimes you couldn't walk by in shoes uh, near synagogue, uh, your mosque, or you couldn't um, wear particular garments. But again, very often it was just the law, and what people did in practice was very, very different. So again, I think we always have to look very carefully at what does the law say and what actually is the law of the land? What happens in reality? Um, but again, in a way, I've actually never thought about this connection. In a way, it was a little bit like East Germany. It was a state basically seeing minority as a ward of the state because you were giving a, an amount, a certain amount of freedom that allowed these people, to, these communities to thrive. But at the same time, and you gave them protection in, 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 in return for it. But at the same time, you did not see them as responsible uh, full members of your society. That's that's interesting that we've we've jumped a thousand years into sort of medieval period, but we still hear the echoes um, of uh, the twentieth century um, or late twentieth century in terms of East Germany and uh, uh, medieval Egypt or medieval Spain. I wonder if uh, Alexander, if we go back another thousand years to New Testament times. Um, whether it's still it's the same. Uh, in other words, that we have the state or the occupying the powerful, the force, the Romans, for example, uh, in control of Palestine. And as long as you, you behaved and had a certain amount of money, then you were given some kinds of freedom. But of course, if you challenge that as a beginning of any religion, such as Christianity did, then your freedoms were, were taken away. Is, is, is that right? I think that is right. And interestingly, um, there's been a long debate about whether or not Jesus was crucified as a political revolutionary, which he may or may not have been. But interestingly, in totalitarian regimes, oftentimes you don't have to be a political, explicitly political revolutionary to be perceived as a danger to the state. Um, one thing that was eye-opening to me was, I'm not entirely sure if I'm well-informed there, but when the Chinese government cracked down on Falun Gong, which in my perception at the time, at least several years ago, was perhaps not self-consciously a political organization, but it seems that they were fairly well organized. And anything that 
creates cohesion among citizens, allows for political debates, potentially could really be um, a, a danger to a totalitarian state. And then, of course, um, historically, it's really interesting how the Romans had achieved some sort of settlement with with the Jewish religion. Um, there's, again, some historical debate to what extent they really tolerated or allowed them. Um, and then Christianity was, of course, first perceived as a variation within Judaism. But that also meant that Judaism changed and totalitarian regimes don't like change. They want things to stay the same once they've got them under control or have arranged some modus operandi there. Um, so that also made for tensions between Christians and Jews. Um, and of course, uh, more importantly, I have to say, between uh, Christians and the Roman uh, authorities. Well, I feel free to call half time on this podcast. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Esther Miriam Wagner and Alexander Massman, and we're discussing freedom. Here's our resident neuroscientist for this edition, Gabrielle Kreiman, in a clip from The Naked Scientists. We cannot really predict very well when we flip a coin whether it's going to land on head or tails, but no one would claim that the, the coin actually wanted to land one way or the other. Ultimately, what you're going to do five hours from now may very well depend on a lot of external factors, not just your own brain. But the main point we are trying to make here is that our illusion of free will may be nothing more and nothing less than ensembles of neurons and circuits firing together in specific patterns. Alexander, it seems in Gabriel's comment that there is, you know, he really questions what free will is. And I wonder, as a theologian, there seems to be a tension between the concept of the almighty, the omniscient, the omnipresent God, and, and, and human free will. Could you just tease that out for us? I mean, what are the big questions that come out of that? As we're talking about freedom, of course, there's a lot of um, really provocative voices from the neurosciences that say um, our awareness of freedom is really just an illusion. And I think it's really uh, quite fascinating to delve into that a little. Um, one important point would be to say, um, if we do experiments on freedom of the will, um, those brain processes that are measured there never come labeled. So it's an immense challenge to interpret these experiments well. Um, now there's been a classic experiment, the Libet experiments, that, that's led to um, a lot of neuroscientists disputing freedom. But there have been other um, similar experiments um, they would say, well, perhaps it's not so clear um, what we've measured there. Perhaps we should hold off a little before we say farewell to freedom entirely. Um, so on the other hand, I think it's really, um, uh, it's perhaps not so helpful to play off a vague idea of absolute freedom and complete a complete lack of freedom. There's certainly um, factors that constrain our freedom. Um, say, from an evolutionary background, certain influences that may be um, due to our genes, and also um, from a neuroscience perspective, that's fair enough. Um, a simple, full-blown assertion of complete freedom I would find unrealistic as well. Um, and then, even if you have a limited range of options in which you exercise your freedom, there's yet another problem which I think is that we often use our freedom to make trivial choices. So um, the freedom to shop uh, can be important, 
but it's it can also take the trivial form of shop till you drop. Um, so we don't actually engage in a meaningful use of our freedom. That's not a question from the neurosciences, but from from an ethical point of view um, that perhaps should be inserted into that debate as well. Well, Miriam, uh, you and I are in the heart of the University of Cambridge, um, where uh, we're meant to be free, we're meant to have free spaces for all sorts of uh, conversations, but yet we know that there is a tension there because we don't allow um, free spaces for people whose views are frankly offensive, racist, prejudiced, and so on. So uh, what what do you make of this vogue of of no platforming and and of limiting conversations? Is, Is that not an attack on our freedom? Well, I mean, this probably shows my age, but I do think sort of non-platforming, uh, or at least a substantial degree of, of, of non-platforming is actually quite dangerous. Um, of course, we wouldn't want to give uh, really, really offensive and really, really wrong views a platform. We don't want Holocaust deniers to talk about their views, and we don't want to have sort of platform uh, extreme homophobes. But on the other hand, there is always a danger that when you focus too much on safe space, you start forbidding any friction. And friction is absolutely essential for all sorts of uh, uh, creative dialogue. So I think that's that's something that a lot of, I don't want to say younger people because it makes me sound very old, but a lot of the students that I've observed who, who talk a lot about safe space, this is something that they seem to be forgetting, that we need friction in our life. We need friction in order to um, question our own views, to engage with one another, to um, discuss things that need discussing. And in the whole sp- safe space uh, discussion that we have at the moment, there seems to be of an accord that there are views that are right and that there are views that are wrong. And I think this is very, very dangerous because you move down a very, very uh, one line, sort of one lane street of of, of righteousness. And uh, again, probably my age, but um, I, f- I find it this very difficult. Alexander, you also, like Miriam, uh, teach many undergraduates. Um, you teach uh, theologians and uh, philo- philosophers. Um, where do you stand on this question of um, safe spaces in the university campus? Yeah, I, I echo Miriam's sentiment. Um, we really have to enable people to um, articulate uh, positions that can be uncomfortable. Miriam, where, where are the limits? I mean, you, you took the example of Holocaust denier, and, and I'm sure very few people would question that. But if you brought it back, what, what, what's the, the line in the sand? What is our right to have freedom of expression versus, for example, uh, freedom to offend or freedom to hate? Well, I think you need to exert freedom to the extent that you don't deprive others of their freedom. I mean, that's the the basic notion that underlines this all. But on the other hand, I think a lot of this discussion about freedom is actually tied up with a discussion about extreme individualism and collective consciousness. So, for example, China prizes collective well-being above the individual well-being, whereas in our societies, we have determined that the only way to be free is to be extremely individualist. And of course, that clashes with a lot of ideas that we have from religious, uh, from scriptures, from uh, more community-focused societies. And this is where really a lot of the the friction, again, as I said, the friction that we need, but it it comes in there because we need to discuss how 
far can we go with individual freedoms while retaining some sort of collective responsibility in collective sense? I mean, for example, I mean, you mentioned the, um, the Ellen, Ellen Bennett quote, freedom to shop. We've taken that freedom so far that we're very, very close to destroying the planet for everyone, including all those poor people who've never been had, who've never had this freedom to shop. Um, again, freedom is tied in with privilege because a lot of freedom is really, really tied in with having money. Um, so I think there are a lot of ideas that you need to, to discuss when you want to discuss freedom. So in a way, Miriam, I guess what you're saying is the, the customer is always right, logic. The, the, the individual basis for our liberal free market has taken uh, the globe to the edge of the precipice in terms of climate change, in terms of environmental damage, uh, and in terms of um, almost a, a kind of eschatological end of the world. Um, now, one other area where people talk in those sorts of uh, dramatic terms um, is in the area of the social media uh, in terms of freedom of expression. So a question for you, Alexander, in terms of the, if you like, the logic, the philosophy of this communication, this mass communication where everyone has become an editor, um, does the, um, the huge growth, the transformation in social media help freedom or does it threaten it? Great question. I think the social media revolution that we've really seen is quite ambivalent. So um, both in the US and um, I'm not sure to what extent in the UK, but also in Germany, there have been studies how interested outside parties are taking significant influence, exerting significant influence on those social media discussions. Um, say Russian bots in the American presidential election um, and even in Germany, um, it's interesting to see how right-wing extremists have a very powerful presence on Facebook and um, also on Twitter, in part also financed um, through Russian sources. Um, so there's a deep irony here. Um, Twitter came with the promise that everybody can claim their freedom, the marginalized can step up to the plate. Um, however, authoritarian forces have sort of hijacked that stage that was offered there. Um, I think the difficulty is, especially with new technologies, um, civil society would need to find better ways to inhabit this new social space uh, so we get voluntary, voluntary ways of quality control. Well, the neurons in my frontal lobe are telling me that we've reached the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Esther Miriam Wagner and Alexander Massman. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or thoughts or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.